Welcome to the Gems of Motherhood. I'm your host, Sharon Khan. I'm here to connect you with some amazing gems of mothers from all walks of life. Each week, you'll hear interviews as well as resources and actionable tips that you can implement in your daily life to be the best gem God has called you to be. Thanks for walking this journey with me today. And don't forget to subscribe to the show. Now let's get into episode 18 with Professor Nancy Piercy. I'm seeing more and more stories now where at school, where kids are coming home and they've learned about transgenderism for the first time at school under the auspices of their teachers, you know, mm. under the auspices of, you know, I mean, they're supposed to respect and trust their teachers and their teachers are giving them information on transgenderism and they're coming home and saying, oh, mom, I'm really a boy. Now, this is a topic that we hardly address and yet it's so important. It's going to be deep, so get your pen and paper ready. Today, Professor Nancy Piercy will be speaking to us about teaching children about the importance of loving thy body. Nancy Piercy is the author of Love Thy Body, answering hard questions about life and sexuality, as well as the soul science, Saving Leonardo, Finding Truth and Total Truth. She has been highlighted as one of the five top women apologists by Christianity Today and hailed in The Economist as America's preeminent evangelical Protestant female intellectual. Welcome to the Gems of Motherhood podcast, Professor Piercy. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Now, Professor Piercy, sometimes it can be difficult to talk to our children about loving thy body. And you wrote a book on loving thy body. Now, we're dealing with issues such as transgender, homosexuality, abortion, and hookup. Why is it important for us moms and parents to teach our children about life and sexuality? Well, if we don't, they're going to pick it up from the culture. Uh, issues like transgenderism are now all the way down to kindergarten and even mm-hmm. preschool. I don't know where you live, but here in Houston, we've had uh, real issues with Drag Queen Story Hour. Yeah, so we have it pe- here too. These are people who are targeting younger and younger children. And that's why Christians need to be on top of this. It it used to be that our teenagers, well, it used to be when I was young, you didn't really encounter this much until you went to college. Mm -hmm. And then it became high school and then ever younger. And now our children are being taught from a very young age that sexuality is just what you choose it to be. Your gender identity is something that you make up and you choose. Um, There was a news item not too long ago where um, a child came home from school from first grade and she came home uh, in tears and in great distress because her teacher had said, um, how do you know you're a girl or a boy? Just because you have girl parts doesn't mean you're a girl. Mm. Just because you have boy parts doesn't mean you're a boy. Mm. So she said, she came home, she said to her mother, mom, take me to the doctor so we can find out if I'm a girl. And the the mother's suing the school. So that's how it got got into the news. But the point is, that's first grade. So as Christian parents, we need to start dealing with these issues at a much younger age than we ever had to before. Yeah, I mean, how can we, you know, I mean, I understand now that schools are, kind of like trying to slowly filter all these um, issues, all these subjects into our young kids. How can we as parents, you know, stop that? How can we as parents help our children understand, no, you are who God created you to be? Right. I think the reason I titled my book, Love Thy Body, is because my I wanted to get across to Christian parents that the best way to talk to your kids is to talk positively. Mm-hmm. 
it's very easy for Christians to get caught up in a, um, a very negative message, right? The stereotype is that Christians are people who say, it's wrong, it's a sin, don't do it, and there's something wrong with you. Mm-hmm. And that's the message I find even now when I speak publicly. I find, I mean in churches and Christian schools and so on, I find that the hardest thing for Christians to get their mind around is how to present it, the Christian ethic, in a positive way. Let's take transgenderism since that's the most cutting edge issue. Mm-hmm. The way we communicate on this issue is not to say they're wrong and they're sinful, it's to say, look how the secular ethic demeans the body, it denigrates the body, it says to children, your body has nothing to do with your authentic self. Mm. There was a BBC documentary on the subject that says, at the heart of the debate is the idea that your mind can be at war with your body. At war. This is a severe internal alienation that they're suggesting, that your body has nothing to do with who you really are. Mm. And and in that war, of course, it's the mind that wins. So that kids down to kindergarten are being taught Your body tells you nothing about who you are. It's not part of your authentic self. And this is why as Christians, we have a wonderful opportunity to say, God made you a body. God made the physical world. Mm -hmm. And what God makes is intrinsically good. What God makes has value and significance. And we are meant to respect our body. We are meant to live in harmony with the creator's design. We're meant to live consistently with our biological sex. And so the, the, the message that we have over against the transgender ideology is actually, is actually that the Christian ethic has a much higher view mm-hmm. of the body than the secular worldview does. And that gives us language, uh, like, like what I was just uh, modeling there when I said live in harmony with your body, respect the creator's design. This is all very positive language. And that's really the starting point. It's just changing our language so that our children understand that Christian ethic is actually based on a very high view of the body. Right. You know, I have parents who obviously came to me and told me that this is what they're going going to be teaching children in kindergarten. And, you know, when I walk by a a local uh, independent bookstore, I see a sign, drag queen doing story time. And that angers me because... Our children do not deserve that, and our children do not need that. And I've had parents who who said, you know what, I'm not going to put my kids in school anymore, but I'm just going to give up my job or find something else to homeschool my children. Now, if schools keep telling kids or bringing in drag queens to share story time and having a, I guess, um, a, a transgender teacher even, how should children even respond and how should us parents respond to that? Well, I'm um, having homeschooled my kids. I'm all in favor of your first option. <laughs> <laughs> but even homeschool kids are affected. In my, in my book, Love Thy Body, I, I do give the story of a young boy who, who had gender dysphoria. You know, and that's the technical term for when you feel out of sync with your mm-hmm. body. And, and this was a kid who was homeschooled. Mm. So true gender dysphoria tends to start when they're very young. Um, today we have a rash of teenagers, you know, discovering, quote unquote, that they're really boys, even mm-hmm. though they were raised as girls. But 
but that's that's a new phenomenon. Genuine gender dysphoria usually shows up when the child is quite young. And in my book, I tell the story of a boy who I call Brandon. Before he was even walking, when he was still crawling, it was mm -hmm. very clear that he was he was very um, gender non-conforming. Um, he was sweet, quiet, gentle, compliant, and all the things that are more stereotypical of girls. His babysitter said was mom, he's too good to be a boy. But by which she meant, you know, he's just so stereotypically, stereotypically fits the girl model. Mm -hmm. When he was in preschool, when his mom picked him up every day, he was playing with the little girls and not the little boys. By elementary school, he was coming to his parents weeping frequently and saying, I feel the way girls feel. I'm interested in the things girls are. God should have made me a girl. So this was a very difficult, oh, by the time he was 14, he was looking up uh, sex change surgery on the internet. Mm. So you say, what did his parents do? First of all, they made sure he knew they loved him just the way he was. They did not try to change him. I, I had a friend once who was a former homosexual and he said, you know, when I was a kid, I was, I was, I was gender nonconforming. You know, I loved art and music and my dad kept trying to toughen me up by pushing me into sports and other more masculine activities. Bandon's parents didn't do that. They made sure he knew that they thought it was perfectly fine for him to be a sweet, gentle, relational boy. That mm. that did not mean he was really a girl. And so they really affirmed him for the gifts God had given him. And they said, you know, maybe God has gifted you to be a counselor or a psychologist or a healthcare worker, you know, mm -hmm. someone who's gentle and caring. Um, they even took him through the Myers-Briggs personality test yeah. and things, things like that to show that men and women can be on both sides of the scale, uh, you know, all, all across the scale. It's perfectly possible for a boy to be gentle and sweet-natured, and it's all just as possible for a woman, a woman to be assertive and take charge and rational. And that doesn't mean that they're not fully feminine or fully masculine. Um, they went through the gifts of the spirit. You know, the gifts of the spirit are not divided by sex. The teaching and mm -hmm. prophecy are not masculine, as you and I might expect. And mercy and service are not feminine. Mm -hmm. So the uh, Galatians says the, the spirit gives them out to individuals as he sees fit. So they fought a lot against the stereotypes. In fact, in fact, Brendan's Brendan's favorite, uh, his parents' favorite phrase was, you know, he would come up to them. For, he, he was in pain a lot because he mm. didn't. He didn't really fit in with the guys. But of course, the girls wouldn't really accept him either because he was a boy. Right. So he didn't fit in anywhere. And so he came to his parents frequently in a lot of pain. And they would say to him, it's not you that's wrong. It's the stereotypes that are wrong. So they would, and I, I'll have to tell you is what, he's, he's graduated from college now. And he's, he's, he has, and he has chosen to stay a boy. Okay. He has chosen to embrace his uh, male identity. He's just a, you know, an unusually gentle man now. Yeah. So that would be um, an example of how parents can help a child with, who has genuine gender dysphoria. And all I want to do is warn you, it's a long, painful haul. Mm. Um, you know, it's, it's, truly, um, it's truly a deep psychological issue, and it takes years and years to work it through. But with God's help and with, again, letting your child know it's okay for them to be not live according to the stereotypes. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. 
Now, I mean, how do we as parents answer difficult questions that they may have, you know, as children about transgender, homosexuality, abortion, and even having hookups? You know, how do we answer those difficult questions? If let's just say they do come to us as parents and hopefully not to somebody else. Yeah. <laughs> right, right. Uh, again, the, the main message of my book is how to approach your children with a positive message. Mm-hmm. And, and what's interesting about this, as long as we're still in transgenderism, I'll give you a, an example. Uh, what's interesting is even non-Christians, even mm-hmm. secular thinkers are starting to see this. There's a very secular, very liberal website where I saw an interview with a 14-year-old girl. Mm-hmm. She had lived as a trans boy for three years, from age 11. She had oh, lived wow. as a boy, yeah. And then we re-embraced her identity as a girl. And in this interview, she said, the turning point came when I realized it's not conversion therapy to learn to love your body. In other words, this came out after my book had already come out because it would have been a great quote mm-hmm. for a book titled Love Thy Body. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But it was fascinating to see a, you know, a very secular, liberal 14-year-old girl say the issue with transgenderism is learning to love your body. It's learning to accept mm-hmm. that if I'm female, this is a good thing. Or if I'm male, it's a good thing. And that I, I sometimes get people saying, well, um, aren't you then overvaluing the body? You know, why should, if you have to choose, if there's a conflict between your feelings and your body, how do you choose? Yeah. To which I say, well, your feelings can change, and they often do, and your body doesn't change, and it's an empirically knowable fact about yourself, and so it is a more reliable marker of your your gender identity than your feelings. In fact, as you probably know, the medical medical scientists say that um, most, like 80 to 90 percent of young people with gender dysphoria outgrow it. If you go, if you allow them to go through puberty, where there's a, you know, a, a huge rush of hormones, if you let them go through puberty, 80 to 90 percent end up finding peace with their physical body, their, you know, their sexual identity. And so, if you can just love them through their those difficult years where they're having trouble and having questions, you know, there's there's no need to be giving them surgery, uh, puberty blockers, cross-sex hormones, surgery when 80 to 90 percent of them end up accepting their biological sex yeah no i mean what causes them to even question about their body i mean how does that even affect them saying that they don't love their bodies how does that even begin that's a good question and why is it so much worse now than it ever was in the past um the numbers of young people who are starting to claim a cross-sex identity has just skyrocketed, and especially among girls. Mm-hmm. When I, I give my PowerPoint talk, I have, these, I have these charts, and you can see the rise of young, especially girls, for claiming a cross-sex identity. You know, It's a fairly flat line, and then it, it, it sharply, almost 90% angle, yeah. the, the numbers go up. And this I, I, earlier I said true gender dysphoria tends to be in young children. Most of these new cases are are teenagers. 
and it's happening very suddenly. In fact, there's even a new term that's been coined. It's being called rapid onset gender dysphoria. Mm. And the point, the point being that these are girls who felt perfectly comfortable being girls their whole life, as far as their parents could tell. They were yeah, fine being girls as toddlers, as, as elementary school And some of them were actually very girly girls. Mm -hmm. And then suddenly it hits them in, in teenage years. And so there was a, there's actually been one study done. You know, it's a fairly new phenomenon. So as far as, far as I know, there's only been one study done. It was by um, Brown University professor named Lisa Littman. If you want to look it up, it's L-I-T-T-M-A-N, Littman. Um, and she, there's the first one done on rapid, rapid onset gender dysphoria. And the, I think the most significant thing she found was that about 63% of these girls had been diagnosed with at least one mental health disorder before the onset of their gender dysphoria. Hmm, interesting. In other words, isn't it? Because most teenagers have some depression and anxiety, yeah. but these were kids where it was um, severe enough that their parents had taken them in for therapy and, had, and they had received the diagnosis. And it, it was usually things like uh, ADHD, um, anxiety, depression, and autism, the most common uh, mental health issue with uh, kids with gender dysphoria is autism. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Nobody knows why, but there's been a very robust correlation with autism. So the upshot is these are very, very distressed kids to start with. These are very troubled kids. And I think yeah. that's what we need to keep in mind when we respond to them. If we know families who are having difficulties, if our own children are having difficulties, they already have a lot of distress. And <laughs> and many of them find that when they come out as trans, mm -hmm. they become instantly more popular. Right. Uh, the Lisa Littman study found that uh, she had actually she actually had a number. Yes, 60, 61 percent of them experienced an increased popularity within their friend group. Wow. Well, for a socially awkward, emotionally troubled child, that's a big draw. That's troubling. I had a chance to write an article where I interviewed several parents of transgender teens. And, and that was one of the stories that they all told me as well. Uh, one of the parents said, um, so her daughter was suicidal, her daughter was autistic, her daughter was had an eating disorder, she was self-harming. Uh, I mean, you could tell this kid was in trouble already, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. And then she would sit, sit in her room for hours alone she had so much difficulty making friends that she, she switched schools three times in three years, trying to find a better situation. And she would watch YouTube videos titled, How to Be Popular. Mm. I didn't know there were such things, but you can imagine. Yeah. These days, teenagers make all kinds of videos. But how did she finally become popular? By coming out as a boy. Mm. Uh, the parent, the mother told me, uh, among young people, here's, here's a quote, being gay or trans is treated as edgy and creative. You are celebrated. You get a parade. So that is part of the appeal. It's for some, for some children who are already emotionally troubled and feel like they don't have a lot of friends. Yeah. They are absolutely celebrated and told how, how, um, how brave and courageous they are if they come out as trans. Because... Mm. Uh it seems like there's social pressure around children and I you know and it also kind of makes me wonder like how much social media plays into all this as well because 
if you look at it, a lot of te- a lot of teens these days have a phone, and social media is like you like the picture, or if you don't like the picture, and the more likes you get, the more popular you are. And I've always wondered if partly social media has something to do with it. Oh, absolutely. Again, this is from the study by Lisa Littman. She definitely found that social, they're calling it social contagion, mm. if you've heard that term. Like, uh, social contagion is a word that's been used for, like, you know, one child commits suicide and then there's a rash of copycat suicides. Yeah. So that word has been out there. Um, now people are saying that a lot of the transgender, the huge increase in transgender kids is partly social contagion. Because you're absolutely right. If they get on the internet and they find hundreds, thousands right. of videos by people who get on and say, oh, I'm getting my trans, I'm getting my testosterone. Yay, I'm so happy. Yeah. And then, you know, they, they uh, every stage of that transition, they're, they're documenting on the internet. I would only say this, though. It started out mostly being social contagion via the internet. I'm seeing more and more stories now where it's school where kids are coming home and they've learned about transgenderism for the first time at school under the auspices of their teachers, you know, mm-hmm. under the auspices of, you know, I mean, they're supposed to respect and trust their teachers and their teachers are giving them information on transgenderism and they're coming home and saying, oh, mom, I'm really a boy. So that really concerns me because, I mean, <laughs> because the school is supposed to be where you learn healthy things. Yeah. You know, you're not supposed to be coming home, coming home from school with questions about your gender identity. Right. But more and more, it's starting now with school that are starting with the internet. Mm, that's really sad. I mean, as we're talking about school and young children, how young should we prepare our children about loving their bodies? Oh, yes. Oh, well, you know, let me give you some, um, I did a little research on books yep. for very young children. And your the parents listening in might uh, find this helpful because they're not a whole lot yet. And so these might be useful. So this is a book for preschool and young children. Wow, I can't believe it started that young. And it's by, uh, the author's name is Ellie, E-L-L-I-E, Clip, K-L-I-P-P. And the title is called, I Don't Have to Choose. And the main theme of this book is just that, just because you like, if you're a girl and you like to play with trucks, it doesn't mean you're a boy. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, because that's where the stereotypes are so mm-hmm. strong these days. As soon as right. a girl shows interest in quote unquote boy things, she's encouraged to think, oh, well, maybe I'm a boy and vice versa. So that's the main message of this book. Is I don't have to choose. I can play with girl things one day and I can play with boy things the next day. And it's, it's okay. I'm still biologically a girl. And I believe that, um, I believe she's a, the, the author is a Christian. Then, as long as we're on Ellie Cliff, she also has a novel for uh, adolescents and teens just called Choosing. Choosing. Mm-hmm. And I went, on, I went on Amazon, and all the reviews were incredibly positive, so I have not read it yet, but the reviews are quite positive. There's, so there's one thing for teenagers, adolescents, and teenagers. Mm-hmm. Then there's um, also for ages five to eight, so that's K through two, but rough. age five through eight, the author's name is Denise Schick. Denise, S-H-I-C-K, Schick. And it's just called, I'm Glad God Made Me a Girl. Mm. I'm glad God made me a girl. And there's another one for, again, for fairly young children, but these are 
I would say elementary because the, the book is, um, the, the setting is a school. So it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's a little bit older. And it's, okay, so here's a, here's a difficult word to, name to spell, but the, the author's name is Marty, M-A-R-T-Y. And then the last name is Machowski, M-A-C-A-O-W-S-K-I. Mm-hmm. And it's called God Made Boys and Girls, Helping Children Understand the Gift of Gender. Mm. And then the final one is uh, it's not by a Christian, and it's for three to it's for three to six year olds called My Body Is Me, and the author is Rachel Rooney R O O N E Y, and this one is not on Amazon. The others all are. Okay. This one's not on Amazon, so to buy it you would have to go to a website called Transgender Trend. And these are parents and professionals, you know, doctors and others, who are very concerned about the transgender issue. Uh, it's a good website. Your parents should be exploring this anyway. They should go right. to the good websites like Transgender Trend because that will acquaint them with resources that are out there. But you have to buy this one from Transgender Trend. So that's a way to get started. Uh, and I should tell you that Denise Schick, who wrote one of those books, I'm glad God made me a girl. Mm-hmm. She has a very interesting history. Her father decided he was really a woman. Oh, okay. (laughs) (laughs) And so she actually has a book for children on that. It's called When Daddy Leaves to Be a Girl. I went online and I saw customer reviews saying this happened to me. So we have to be prepared. Oh, wow. Wow. You know, I know that you you said in your book, Love Thy Body, that, you know, you teach about positive speaking. Now, how should we teach our children to be confident in their God-given body? I think one thing we need to do is stand against the negative message that honestly still is in some churches. Mm-hmm. Um, we do have a history of what's called the sacred secular split. Mm-hmm. You've heard that term probably. Uh, a lot of Christians do tend to think, the sacred realm is what's really important. On the secular realm, well, you know, sort of a sort of second class. So the spiritual realm is, you know, where we talk about religion and spirituality. We go to church, we have our Bible studies, and that's what's really important. That's what God really cares about. And then we tend to think that the rest of life, like our physical life, our um, our, our jobs, our recreation, that that's not really so spiritual and that many of us have a harder time even understanding how biblical truth applies to the secular realm. In fact, uh, my earlier book, Total Truth, that you mentioned, that, that's the whole theme of Total Truth, is how to overcome that sacred-secular split. Mm. And what we have to realize is that the sacred-secular split actually does not come from the Bible. What it comes from is the uh, early church was born in an ancient Greek and Roman culture that denigrated this, the material world, that said the material world is not important, that had, well, you've probably heard of, of the philosophy of Gnosticism. Mm-hmm. If you study the New Testament, we often talk about how some of the New Testament was written against Gnosticism. Gnosticism, Platonism, Manichaeism, uh, Augustine was a Manichae. All of these isms in the ancient world treated the physical world, the material realm, as a realm of death, decay, and destruction, and treated salvation as escaping mm-hmm. from the material world. In fact, Plato even called the body the prison house of the soul, and we need to escape from that prison. Well, you don't really see that in the Bible at all, but right. we're all influenced by our culture, right. and many of the New Testament thinkers kind of picked up that those ideas 
from the Greco-Roman culture they were in. And so <laughs> one of my teachers once said, we kind of lost the Great Commission and ended up with the Greek Commission. <laughs> you know, they picked up the sacred secular split from the Greeks and started treating the material world as if it didn't really matter. And so we have to, uh, today we still have to consciously overcome that heritage by going back to basic scriptural principles. Number one, God made all of creation. God made the material world. What God makes is good. We Amen. don't agree. We don't agree with the Greeks that the material world is evil and to be escaped from. The material world is good because it's God's creation and our bodies are part of the material world. God's handiwork, we're called by God to respect the material world. Secondly, the incarnation. In the early church, the incarnation was a scandal because they didn't think that a, the, a God, the highest mm -hmm. God, the good, great, supreme God would come into the physical world. Mm -hmm. To them, that right. was that, to come in and take on a physical body. And then not only that, but when Jesus was executed on a Roman cross, we might say he did escape from the prison house of the body, as ancient Greek thought taught, taught you know, Gnosticism taught we should aspire to do. But then what did he do then? He came back yeah. in a physical body. Yeah. So the, to the ancient Greeks, this was not spiritual progress. This was regress. Who would want to come back to the realm of the body? Mm -hmm. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians, this was the concept of a physical resurrection was utter foolishness to the Greeks. Mm. And then at the end of time, God is not going to scrap the material world as though he made a mistake the first time around. <laughs> <laughs> He's going to renew it and restore it, creating a new heavens and a new earth. And we will be on that new, new earth in restored physical bodies. From the time of the Apostles' Creed, the church has affirmed the resurrection of the body. Mm. Christians need to understand that we have an incredibly, Christianity has an incredibly high view of the body and the material realm. I, you know, I'll, I'll tell you from having studied lots and lots of other religions and philosophies, there is nothing like this, right. any other philosophy or religion. And so we should be utterly excited right. with the incredibly life-giving, life-affirming message that we have in Christianity. It should just be overflowing from us. Amen. <laughs> what a wonderful message this is. The good news doesn't start with Jesus is your, uh, Jesus is your Savior. The good news starts with God created the heavens and the earth. Amen. And God created us as right. men and women. You know, I, I guess I wanted to come to this question. What are some actionable tips which you suggest to moms on how to prepare their children to love thy bodies? I mean, what are the steps that us parents should take? Well, when children are very young and they're first discovering the body, obviously that's when they're most moldable. And that's when the message of, isn't, isn't this wonderful? God made you this way. Mm. If, you're, if you're a little girl, God has made you to someday be a mother. If you're a little boy, God has made you someday to be a father. And these are good things. So that by the time the secular messages are permeating media and so mm -hmm. on, they're already, they're already seeing the Christian ethic as something that expresses the high view, the value and significance of the body. Mm -hmm. Not as a negative thing. You know, the, the secular world would try to say, oh, the Christian ethic is based on hating yourself. I mean, that's what they really think. You know, you just hate sex. You just have a, <laughs> you, you just hate pleasure. You just don't, 
know, Christian ethic is just about just denying fun and pleasure. And so from the very beginning, we have to be helping young people to see that when you live the way God made you to, yes, there's some, there's some limits, but limits help you be who you really are. Right. They help you to become who you really are meant to be. Everyone knows that to achieve something, you've got to put limits on. If you want to be a doctor, you can't, you know, you can't go drinking with your buddies every weekend. You got to walk the narrow road, right? <laughs> you, you have to be disciplined and you have to say no to a lot of things if you have high aspirations. Right. So it's the same with, it's a, that's what morality is about. If you have high aspirations, you have to have limits. Mm-hmm. Not because you're saying the body's bad, but because you say for the body to be all it can be. Mm-hmm. And to me, another analogy is nutrition. Mm. If you want to be healthy, you have to have some limits. You can't just eat pizza and ice cream all the time and drink Coke and think, you know, well, if you tell me I can't do this, you're negative. (laughs) And, 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 you know, you you have a body hitting. No, in fact, in fact, let me switch. We we need to turn the tables. Going back to where we started with transgenderism, um, it's fascinating to me that even secular people are starting to say transgenderism rests on body hatred. Starting to see that now in secular websites and so on. Like that transgender trend that I mentioned. If you go to websites where uh, they're secular, they're not Christians, and most of them are very liberal, but they're very concerned about transgenderism. And a very common phrase you now see is transgenderism is, is body hatred. So we have a wonderful opportunity now to turn the tables and show that it's really the secular ethic that devalues and demeans the body. Let me give you one more example. This was a young woman who, um, she transitioned at age 14. She has a website, so I, I read her story. She was a, a woman who lived as a boy starting at age 14, lived that way for five years, hmm. and then detransitioned and recovered her identity as a girl. As a, yeah, as a girl. And what was interesting in her story was this. First of all, what we said earlier about the affirmation. Yeah. She said she said as soon as she as soon as she came out as a boy, she was instantly welcomed into the trans community and celebrated and affirmed. And she said, I got a lot more affirmation. Oh, oh, here's how she put it. The, mm. the the boy me got a lot more affirmation than the girl me ever did. Mm-hmm. Five years later, she decided she'd made a mistake and detransitioned back to being a girl. And she said she was absolutely, absolutely attacked and lost all her friends and essentially treated as a traitor to the cause. And at the very end of her article, she said, it's all worth it, though. She said, what did I learn? She said, what did I learn from my experience? She said, if I could help just one girl to learn to love her body, Mm. it would all be worth it. Wow. There it is. Even these extremely secular people are starting to see the issue is loving, loving your body. body. Yeah. Um, I know we touch uh, quite a bit on transgender and a little bit on homosexuality, but what does how does abortion play into loving thy body? Yeah, I'm glad you asked. So if you read secular bioethicists, professional bioethicists today, they all admit that life begins at conception. They all admit that. Mm -hmm. That's not an issue anymore. The evidence from DNA and genetics is just too strong to deny it. So how do they get around that then and support abortion? Well, they say, 
and the early stages, the fetus is human, you're biologically human, but not a person. Mm-hmm. And personhood only emerges when the fetus reaches a certain level of cognitive ability, cognitive functioning, self-awareness, and so on. So what are they really saying? They're saying that until, as long as the fetus is human, as mere, quote unquote, merely human, it has no rights. It can be killed for any reason or no reason. It can be tinkered with genetically. It can be used for research and experiments. It can be picked through for sellable body parts, like Planned Parenthood does, and then tossed out with the other medical waste, which is how they actually talk about it in, in medical journals. They talk about the, you know, the, the remains of the fetus are medical waste. In other words, being human is no longer enough for human rights. And so do you see how that also is a denigration of being human? Mm-hmm. They acknowledge that the fetus is biologically, physiologically, chromosomally human, but they treat it as just a piece of matter right. that you can do anything with. Right. So do you see how, and sometimes they will actually say it's just a body. They will actually mm-hmm. use that term. It's just a body. It's not a person yet. So again, abortion rests on a denigration of the human body. Hmm. Interesting. That is so true. I mean, it is life, you know, because as soon as there is a fetus, that's life in our bodies. And it's really sad on what the world is becoming to uh, these days. But uh, Nancy, we're almost at the end of the show. You know, I kind of wanted to ask you, is there anything else you would like to share with other gems of mothers out there? I know you've got plenty, so please (laughs) share all the gem nuggets that you can. (laughs) Wow, well, you know, we did cover a lot, um, which is, you covered a lot in a short amount of time. Maybe, um, because this is also surprising, two things that we didn't cover that that could be useful to parents when talking to their their children. An argument that has been surprisingly effective, Mm -hmm. both with Christians and non-Christians, is based on the environmental movement. Mm. And you say, what does environmentalism have to do with these issues of sexuality? Well, what, we, what we've discovered through the uh, environmental movement is that to avoid pollution and ecological disasters, we need to respect the structure of nature. We, you, know, you can intervene, but when you do, you need to respect the structures of nature as, they, uh, you know, as God has created them. You have to work with them, not against them. Mm-hmm. And in the same way, what Christians are saying is that in sexual issues, we should work with our biological nature. We should respect our biological identity as male or female. The biological correspondence between male and female is not some evolutionary accident. It's part of the original creation that God pronounced very good. Mm -hmm. And when I use this argue I first started using it with my secular friends and they'd say oh I get it you know oh I can I see that yeah and I, I was t- kind of taken aback like okay you know we have we have learned that you can't just r- ride rough show up ride rough shot over nature without being disastrous yeah and it's the same with say transgenderism you can't just deny your biological identity it's going right. to be destructive we need to respect it honor it 
and even my secular friends get it when I put it that way. So, mm -hmm. I, uh, so I offer that to parents as something they might find useful with their kids, especially teenagers who, who are environmentally conscious because, of course, that's teenagers who are cause-oriented. Right. Are very into the environment, these days, and, and they should be. I mean, that's good. But it's especially helpful with teenagers. And the second thing that might be helpful is... Um, Darwinism. How does mm. how does Darwinism fit in here? Because you know our kids are just inundated with evolutionary theory. Your ethic is always based on your view of nature, because your body's part of nature. Yeah. So the secular ethic that demeans the body, that denigrates the body, ultimately is rooted in a Darwinian view of our origin. In other words, life is a product of blind, material, purposeless, mindless forces. And therefore, it has no intrinsic purpose that we are morally obligated to respect. Mm. There's a uh, well-known lesbian. Her name is Camille Paglia. Okay. And a lot of Christians read her stuff because she's a little bit of iconoclast. She's, she, although she's a feminist, she, she does not believe that male and female are social constructs. She says, no, no, no. Nature made us male and female. Humans are a biologically reproducing species. And then you say, well, then how, why, are you, why are you a lesbian then? Mm -hmm. you know, how, does she, how does she defend that? And she says, and these are her words. She says, why not defy nature? Fate, not God, has given us this flesh. We have absolute claim to our bodies and may do with them as we see fit. That is exactly the logical outcome of Darwinian evolution. If purposeless, mindless causes created my body, then why should I be limited to any moral rules? Mm. You know, there's no intrinsic purpose that I need to honor and respect. And so that's really the, at the, at the core of this debate is the question, are we the products of mindless, purposeless forces, or are we the product of a loving creator who did create us for a purpose? Mm. And that's the bigger theme that we need to have running through all my communication with our children. Wow. That was so good. That's so deep. Thank you so much, um, Nancy, for coming on the show. I really appreciate you sharing all those gem nuggets with us. I mean, I would never think that to talk about Darwinism and how much it would affect that. And and I, I'm so glad you shared that because it's definitely an eye-opener. And I'm sure a lot of moms and a lot of parents are being so blessed by this episode because there's so much that we can implement just by listening to what you have to say. So again, I appreciate you really coming onto the show and sharing all the gem nuggets with us. Well, thanks so much for having me. I went on your website and, and, and got all nostalgic for when I had younger children. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Gems of Motherhood podcast. If you're wanting to connect with more amazing Gems of Mothers and more resources, head over to gemsofmotherhood.com where you can subscribe to the show. That's where you'll find show notes with actionable tips and any links mentioned by our guest. Most importantly, I hope you'll find inspiration and learn to cultivate your own journey. You are love. You're an incredible gem to God. He knows you intimately. He knows what you're going through and he knows what you need. Remember, you are fearfully and wonderfully made in him. Be sure to tune in next week for our next episode.